Well, as I've told you a number of times, my kids attend um, Mannheim Central instead of Mount Calvary. Um, it's another story in itself, but they had their homecoming dance over the weekend for the high school. Even though Andrew's a junior, it was our first time to really have the kids even be interested in going to homecoming. Now, part of that was COVID and they were very different, um, different experiences the last couple of years. But uh, there was also just a large group of uh, a large group of kids that were going that were in their friend groups. And so both kids came separately to us and asked if they could go. And so we, um, we, they wanted to make a, a make a big deal about it and, and go. And we, so we were like, okay. So we finally got Andrew with the suit that he had been asking for for a while. Have you ever tried to buy a suit for a super tall, super skinny kid? Oh man, it's rough. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Catherine got a new dress. Hers was easy. She was like, mom, I found this one. And she shows me her phone. I said, send me the link. And we hit order and we were done. Like, um, they figured out shoes and hair. They figured out how they were getting there because it would be too easy for them to just ride together. Because, you know. Um, but the part I laughed about and was also the part that some other parents laughed about because we talked about it, was the permission slip we had to sign for our kids to be able to go to the dance. Now, I understand the need for the permission slip. I understand the need for all the things on the permission slip. But it was still funny to talk to my kids about the fact that, about how they were gonna dance. And we said, are you, are you gonna dance? You know, and so Ray and I stood there, you know how you do, because you gotta leave plenty of room, right? So like fingertips on the shoulders and, and you just rock back and forth, right? You all know how that is. <laughs> For the Holy <Spirit>. Exactly. <laughs> we were just, so we were joking about this and then we get this um, permission slip that says, says they could not dance suggestively. And so we're, we're teasing them about this because these are my geeky kids, right? And, and Andrew was like, mom, we're not going to dance like you and dad did. And we're not going to dance like this. All we're going to do is like this. And he just starts jumping up in the air with his hand up. <laughs> and I was like, okay, done. <laughs> so, um, but obviously, I, I mean, there were, there were several other, um, other rules as well for the safety and well-being. They had to arrive before seven. They couldn't leave before 8.30. Um, so different things, but this, this list of rules for the dance, they had reasons. They were, there was a need for some of these rules, probably from past experience, but maybe, maybe just past experience somewhere else that they didn't want to have happen. You know, we can look on the, you know, be, be the optimist. Um, but they were there, for, the rules were there for the safety and the well-being of the kids, because they know the school knows that teenagers' brains aren't all connected, right? We have high expectations of our kids when we think they can make all these logical decisions and reasoning when it's like 26, when, the, when their brain are actually finally all connected and can actually make those decisions in terms of development. But 
for for these for these teenagers that were going to this dance they needed reminders of how to behave and so the school laid out the rules ahead of time so that the students didn't have to think about whether they were making good decisions or not because the parents had to sign and the student had to sign that they had talked about the rules unfortunately King Ahasuerosh did not have rules for his behavior laid out ahead of time for his party. So let's, as we shift from Mannheim Central's homecoming back to Esther, let's remember where we ended up last time. So Ahasuerosh was hosting a party for all his military and government officials, right? six months long, showing his power, building his confidence in his, in his officials so that he could plan and gain support for an attack on Greece. Then that six months was done, and so he and his queen both hosted separate week-long parties for the men and women who were in Susa. Now, I was asked last week um, a, a couple of different questions about those two parties. So, um, Ancient Persian culture would allow for men and women to feast together regularly. It, it was pretty normal. Um, but Queen Vashti's feast for the women was most likely the, the wives of those who were at the king's feast. Um, it would have been within the palace complex, even though they would have had separate, uh, separate buildings, probably. But... In hosting this feast for the wives, it was that she was likely trying to protect them from the debauchery that their husbands were creating in the party on the other side of campus. Uh, that's what most of the theologians, if they mentioned it, that's what they said was happening. Um, and so even though they could have been together, it was, it was likely just the men and just the women on the in the in the palace complex on on campus together um, now one thing to note before we carry on and it's important when we think of persian culture today we think iran iraq other middle eastern countries we don't see women treated well um, they are wearing the the burqas and you can only see their eyes and they can't drive and they can't think for themselves and they can't own things for themselves and so it's easy to assume based on that that women in in persian culture you know that's today that women back in the time of esther and ahasuerosh that they were objects and possessions more than people um However, Cyrus the Great, Ahasuerus's grandfather, we've mentioned him a few times before, he did a lot for women in Persian culture. And he allowed, so, so it wasn't just for women, but because he allowed for freedom of religion when, with the Jews by allowing them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So this was his character, was to, um, to let people be people and let them... Uh, think for themselves and do for themselves for the good of the whole nation and not just not just for part of it so he granted a lot of rights to women of the time 
and Persian women at this time were highly respected. They could own property, they would have received equal pay to men, they could travel on their own, they could even hold their own councils on policy. Um, and so as we carry through this passage today, those are the things we need to be thinking of is, is how, how women, women's rights looked at the time, um, but, but also that Vashti had some wisdom in knowing that there was this need for this separate party, this separate celebration, um, and, and knew that, uh, yeah, knew that it needed it. And then last week in verses 8 and 9, we learned two things about King Ahasuerosh, right? The, verse 8, he, it was, drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion, Right? So he gave up some of his power to his people by not compelling them to drink when he did. And then verse 9 was when, when we see that Vashti had her own feast, that he allowed the queen to host a feast of her own accord. He had been showing off his power and his possessions, but he just showed weakness in these two verses in bending to make people happy and to make people like him. And so let's start with our um, with this week's passage. So Esther one ten through twelve. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded. Just do your best. Power through. Ashverosh. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So, with our observations, when do these verses take place? Yeah, the, the seventh day of that week-long feast. Why is this timing important? Absolutely, alcohol could have um, could have played a large factor after drinking for seven days because we know the king was drinking, or we, yeah, but because he was uh, the heart of the king was merry with wine, is what what the verse tells us, right? And then and then what else? What what else makes that seventh day important? Mm -hmm. So you want, you know, you want people to leave with a bang. Maybe. Yeah, the king was thinking. The king was thinking, "This is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send them off with this fabulous me memory of the beauty of my wife." Right? They hadn't 
seen each other in at least those seven days, right? They were having their two separate lives being lived in their two separate feasts. Uh, but they, um, yes, the, the king had his plan and the queen had hers. And so what, what all, so who, if we think about the who, um, what all do we know about Vashti and what can we kind of infer about her from these verses? She was beautiful. She was beautiful. As morals, discretion, strong-willed. She's a great event planner. An event planner, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, likely she was very protective of those women. She might have known what, what some of the men were capable of. Uh, She did. She had good self-esteem, good good self-worth, um, and and she also must have had a royal crown, because that's mentioned, and so that must have been of some importance. And um, she took a stand against the greatest power in her universe. Yeah. The king. Yeah, took a stand against the greatest power in her universe. Yeah. And and she wasn't stuck to to custom right because they could have celebrated together um, but she was not trapped into that Qu queen vashti was was a trophy wife really because he says um he wanted to show them their her beauty because she was lovely to look at um, beauty was attributed to vashti twice and to Esther only once. And so, so in the Hebrew language, that tells us that Vashti was more beautiful than Esther was. Um, that's just how the language works. Now Vashti may have been a title rather than a name um, because the name Vashti is, is best or beloved when you translate it. Um, it is believed that her Greek name, based on some historical writers, was a mistress. Um, and so if you look up Queen Vashti in different writings, you're not going to find her historically. Um, but that's based on the timing, they think it's a mistress. Uh, but Ahasuerosh sees her as this thing of beauty and he wants to show her off. And so how many eunuchs are sent to retrieve Vashti? Seven. Why do you think seven? Right, the, the, gives the names of those seven likely to validate the event, to say, you know, this is really true because here are the names. This makes it even more, more valuable. Um, it was a sign of power. He had seven eunuchs that could go and just fetch his wife. Um, he had, that means he had a whole lot of servants. 
uh, but it was, it was also possible that it took seven men to carry the queen on the royal litter, that, you know, that curtained couch thing that they carry on those poles, you know. Um, and it would have made for a very grand and dramatic entrance. Um, and the king wanted, like we've talked about, he wanted to inspire patriotism. He wanted to inspire loyalty and confidence. And that's, that's a way to do it. But Vashti refused. So why would this have been so offensive to Ahasuerus? Because he said, I want you to come here. Yeah. He said, he said, come, and she didn't say how, you know, how soon, when, like, didn't jump right then. He probably said it in front of everybody. <clears throat> yeah. He probably said, hey, I'm going to show you my wife. And then she refuses in front of all those people. Yeah, there would have been a level of embarrassment. And, and, and part of it was that she was, she was still a woman, and even though they had equal rights, there still would have been an authority issue um, where just her being a woman challenging the authority of a man. But she was also a wife disobeying her husband. But the most important one was she was a subject that was defying her king. Now the author does not tell us why she did not come. And while I don't want to get us all caught up in this, I do think it's interesting to think about some of the reasons why she might not have come. Because some of those reasons are going to affect how we think about, what we think about why she didn't come is going to make us sort of picture, take a, that's going to impact the rest of the way we see the, the rest of the passage. Right? So, so what are some of the reasons that she might have refused? Just think about it. Here's this drunken orgy going on for 180 <laughs> days into seven more days. So there you are having your own thing. The queen's having her own thing. She seems to have a sensible mind that she can think for herself. So what would she think that was going to happen? Was she going just with her crown on and nothing else? Because in that day, like you said, they had to wear uh, veils and, and only their eyes were out. She didn't suspect this was going to happen. She yeah. suspected something different, and she would have been embarrassed. Yeah, there, there, um, there are some be that believe that because it says that she was to bring the queen with her royal crown to appear before the king, that that was literally all she was going to be wearing. Um, we don't know if that's true or not. That could be. Um, yeah, it could have been that that self-worth that you mentioned earlier that that she didn't find her value in what the men would think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't know what what exactly Ahasuerosh was planning to do. Yeah, she could have just been busy. Like, I can't, I can't just drop everything and come. Are you crazy? 
I think as women, we have all been there at some point in time, right? Um, but in, in reality, these reasons, the author doesn't share a why. And so we have to remember that we don't know why and we have to be okay with that. The only point that we can walk away with from this encounter is that Queen Vashti disobeyed the king. Uh, she was expected to obey the king absolutely. Uh, Landon Dowden, he wrote the Christ-Centered Expository Commentary. He says, while minimum con minimal content is devoted to Vashti in the text, her refusal to appear before the king is a major facet of God's preservation of his people. We don't know her reason, but we know that God used that. Um, and we know that the king's reaction was immediate. And so what was his, um, what was his response? He burned with anger. Yeah, he burned with anger. He wasn't, he, he, he wasn't just angry, he became enraged. We've just seen Ahasuerus spending the last 187 days showing how much control he has and how much power he has. And yet he couldn't control his emotions at this. He couldn't, he could control everything but himself. Or his wife, yes. Yeah, he had just been showing off his greatness for the last over six months, and yet his beloved and best, because that, that's what Vashti means, his beloved and best wife refused to obey. She embarrassed him, she ruined his plan and his vision for his glory and greatness. So the king was powerful, but he does not always use his power to make decisions for good. They are not well planned and thought out. Uh, he uses his power for his own agenda. And there are really two forces at work here. There's anger and there's alcohol. Um, and it, while the point of the passage is not the alcohol or the drunkenness, um, I do want us to think about some of the things that does impact uh, our decision-making. And alcohol is one of those. We can all probably think of poor decisions that we've heard of from people as a result of their drunkenness. Um, I have extended family members that are alcoholics. So I grew up within 10 minutes of all of my cousins. We spent a lot of time together. And I grew up watching the effects of alcohol. And at age 12, I could see enough of the effects on alcohol, of alcohol on people's behavior that I made the decision, I am never gonna touch that stuff because I don't want to ingest something by choice that had the power to change who I was so drastically. Now, this was a very personal decision for me. This is not me saying this is the decision everyone should make. 
because that's not the point of the passage. My point in sharing this is I was 12 years old. Remember, not all those brain connections made yet. And I could still see the impact that alcohol had on decision making. Now, the Persians, they saw the mind-altering effects of alcohol a little differently than we do today. They knew that it altered your mental state, but they believed that that, that uh, mental fogginess was them being closer to the spiritual world. They believed that this contact with the spiritual world, also known as drunkenness, would give them helpful counsel. Now today we know that his critical thinking was thoroughly impaired. Um, he had a drunken whim to show off the beauty of his wife and her crown and it didn't work out how he wanted so he threw a temper tantrum, right? That was great decision making, wise counsel from the spiritual world, right? But let's see how he handled his anger. Uh, so Esther 1, 13 through 15. Then the king said to the wise man who knew the time, for this is the king's procedure toward all who were first in law and judgment. The men next to him being Shaphar, Maha, Tarshish, Marish, Marcina, and Manukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's state, sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she did not perform, she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuch. Great job on the names. <laughs> so what is the first thing that this almighty and all-powerful king that just spent the last 187 days showing off his greatness and wealth, what's the first thing that he does? He goes to other people to ask for what he should do. I'm all-powerful and almighty and all-great. What do I do next? That's, that's what he did. He went to consult with his wise men, his advisor. Now, part of this is tradition and custom, but this was his immediate response. And so what does that say about King Ahasuerus? He, he had some weakness. He was weak. He A lack of confidence. Right. He, he was overcompensating for his lack of confidence with these parties. And somebody over here said something. Yeah, he was unsure of himself. Yeah. He, because he, and the question he asks is, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? He's asking them what the law says, Right. He has absolute power, but he doesn't know what to do with it. So again, we're given names, this time for the advisor. And again, it lends credence to the story. Um, these were close, high-ranking advisors, advisors whose families would often provide the queen for the king. Um, and he wanted to seek an answer from the law. 
Now that phrase when it says the wise men who knew the times, or the ESV says who knew the times, that suggests that at least some of them were astrologers. Um, they would have practiced divination. They would have studied the movement of the stars. These men are the kind that are the ones that were the magi that visited at the birth of Jesus. They, it, it was a very common practice at the time. So he goes straight to his wise men, and we want to see how they respond. So uh, Esther 1, 16 through 22. So who is it that steps up and gives a response? Yeah, mimikin. Or if you say it in the Hebrew, the, the C is really that sound, but I can't do that very well. So we're just calling him mimikin. Um, so how does he respond? What's, what does he tell the king? Yeah, he, he said, he said, get rid of her completely. Make it so that there is no chance whatsoever that she even sees you again. She can't even be in your presence anymore. You need to keep in mind that they are here. Right. And they, are, they are close to the spiritual world as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> and also, uh, God is working behind the scenes, even through this drunkenness and the whole thing. That's right. So I'm going to I'm going to repeat it. So so Mimikin, he's like he and all of these other six other advisors are all just as drunk or just as their their hearts are just as merry with wine as the kings. Right. And here they are. They they are giving this grand, you know, grand advice. Right. This. But but. 
it's based on exaggeration, right? Because that's what you do when you're drunk. Mimikin exaggerated every single bit of what happened. And he makes it about more than just the king, but about every single man in the empire. And not just about every man in the empire, but about every woman is going to do exactly what Queen Vashti did. Right? And then they, they, they said, go and make a law and that, that she can't come back. Why do you think Mimikin would do this? Yeah, there was a level of him wanting to impress the king. And also, I had in one of the commentaries I read, it said, obviously all the men in the room were afraid that all the women in the kingdom would be doing what Queen Vashta had done. So they were afraid, supposedly thinking that their lives were going to be miserable because their wives were going to start to say no, like right. the queen did. Yes, there, there was, but there was likely a level of fear. What if this were me? What would I, you know, how, how would I respond? Uh, which would have also, um, would have also had a level of outrage, trying to put the outrage on the other advisors as well, uh, and not just leave it to the king. Um, Right, the, yeah. the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, off with their heads, yeah. right? Yeah, right, right. But they didn't think of that. I mean, that would have certainly sent a message to all the... You wouldn't have had to send a decree out to tell all the men that right. they got to be the king of their household. It just would have been... But they didn't, they didn't think of that. They didn't think of that. The, their closeness with the spiritual world did not allow <laughs> for her to be executed for this, right? He was, but Mimukin had that level of fear. He had that sense of this is my opportunity to gain some, some power. There was, um, he, he wanted to, to gain favor with the king by justifying his anger. You should be outraged. Imagine what can happen to the whole empire, right? I mean, that's the way I, that's the way I heard, heard him speak. Who knows, but... You know, that's, that's the Bible translation according to Morgan. Um, but he would have found very easy support in a room filled with inebriated men. Now, the question would be, so it says, um, uh, this very day, verse 18, this very day, the whole, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Do you think that really would happen? I mean, you could think yes, you could think no. I'm truly asking, what, what do you think? I think maybe in rare cases, if, they, if the wives were there, saw the refusal, there could be a little of that, but no, I don't think the majority, this is going to affect all the marriages throughout the land, this, this decree. And so, no, I don't think that 
this was necessary. Yeah. And that's kind of the way it comes across, too, that we don't think that would really be the case. Would they really hear that the queen refused the king and decide, oh, this is my chance? <laughs> like, I think if they were going to refuse their husband, they were going to do it with or without the queen. Right. On, on paper, they had the rights, but in, in reality, they, they likely didn't. Yeah, and it would have been, it would have been very much the, uh, the you, you take care of the household and you do what I tell you and you, you still, you may be able to travel on your own, but I have to give you permission to go. And yeah, there still would have been levels of that definitely going on. Right. Yeah. Was he was he married and was he projecting some somewhat? Right. Yeah. That is entirely possible. Um, there there would have been a at a minimum. Say, sorry. He he was a, he was a wise man. Yeah, yeah. No. So, so but there could have been a level of of or a lack of confidence in his part in his own marriage that he was, he was sort of projecting somewhat and taking advantage of the opportunity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So based on what we see about him, what, did, what, what would Mimukin be looking for in his ideal wife? One that respects him. Respects him. Submissive. Well, I think more so he wants someone to do what he says. Yeah, that blind obedience. Yes. Yeah. First time, every time with a happy heart. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Or uh, maybe you've heard it said right away, all the way in a happy way. So I um, initially planned to go somewhere completely different with with this passage, as you can see on your outline, it will tell you biblical womanhood instead of what we're doing. And God said, no, no, no. Um, and so it seems like an odd thing as I sit here in a room with a group of adult women. Um, but we're going to talk briefly about obedience. And how do you define obedience? Right away, all the way, in a happy way? Yeah, when you think of your kids anyway. <laughs> yeah, when we think of our kids, that's a really good one. Respect. Respect. Yeah. Say, say that again. I don't know Patch the Pirate. 
I will have to. I will have to. I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> well, I'm going to look it up anyway. But, um, yeah, so, but here's the question. Your boss asks you to do something. Is it disobedience to finish what you're doing before you do what he asked you to do? Depends on how he asks you. What if you're What if you're on your lunch break? I'm clocked out. I'm off the clock. My boss comes in. We're going to make it a woman boss. She says, she says, I need this, 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 and this done. Is it disobedience to finish your lunch first and clock back in? Yes, and that is the entire point. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, it is an emergency and you need to do what you're told. We did a in, intruder, they, they didn't call it an intruder drill. They had some fancy name for it um, this morning. Um, they didn't like have somebody coming through with like a Nerf gun or anything like that, but it was extended homeroom to talk about what you would do if there was a lockdown in the building and things like that. And I was, I was not the teacher of the homeroom, but I'm in the classroom where the homeroom meets. And the teacher said, this is one of those times when you just have to do what you're told. And I'm gonna tell you, don't go running straight out the door until we know where the intruder is. The first thing we do is block the door and go over here. And he says, that's what you're doing. Once we know and once you're told it is safe to run, you run out this door, out that door, and down the hill. Like, these were senior boys, by the way, so they could handle a little more than, like, first graders. So, but, but that, was, that was the direction they were given. This is the time that you obey right away, all the way, no questions asked. You don't do anything else. And that there is a time when that is called for. So I've spent the weekend with some of these fine ladies at a, a conference on biblical wisdom. Um, one of the sessions I went to was called Instilling Wisdom in the Next Generation. And throughout the weekend, um, but in particular in this um, particular session, the relationship between wisdom and discernment came up. And one of the ideas in this particular session was equipping our children. Um, my thing just went away. 
was equipping our children to go into the world with discernment, training them to be thinkers and not just compliant. It was the idea that our children will have to leave our nest someday, hopefully, and we don't want them to just go along with whatever someone says. We want them to wisely think about it. We want them to make a thoughtful decision about what to do and how to act. Now, there is a point in time where all of our children should just do what we tell them to do when we tell them to do it, happy or not. Like, I'm not faulting the right away, all the way, in a happy way plan at all. Um, But there should be a level of obedience because they trust us to seek what's best for them. That it's not just because they fear what might happen if they don't obey, but because they have a reason to obey. I still remember the time I went to pick Andrew up from a birthday party at a friend's house, and the dad said, before you go, I need you to know. And I was like, oh, great, right? What in the world? He says, there was a point where the boys were downstairs playing this video game. Um, and it was a video game that, that we do not, or at that time, he's, now he's 16, he can play the video game. When he was 10, he could not play the video game. Um, that his friends were playing a particular video game in the basement that he knew he wasn't allowed to play. And so he just said, you guys go ahead and play, I'm gonna go upstairs. So he sat upstairs with the adults, because they were down in the basement. He sat upstairs with the adults until the boys were done with that game. Now, they were moving game to game to game to game. It was like 10 minutes. But um, Andrew knew that we would have no idea whether he played that game or not. And he knew that at the house he was at, he was fully allowed to play that game. But we had raised Andrew to be a thinker. And so instead of making the decision to obey what his friends wanted or what his friend's dad would allow, he made the decision to obey our rule instead, instead of the pressure of his advisors of the moment. And that was a moment when we knew that Andrew understood what obedience truly meant that it wasn't just about doing whatever somebody said. It was about thinking through what the right decision was. Um, and, And so I want not just my children, but for myself, I want to be a thinker and not a blind complier. And I want to raise thinkers and discerners. But what we see is that King Ahasuerosh did not. He expected blind compliance and then he followed what it was that these advisors told him without stopping to think about it. And so these wise men, in, they advised him to make a decree. A decree is a law that everyone in the empire would know about. They didn't have to say in here that it would be something that couldn't be repealed because if he made a decree, it couldn't be repealed. That was the nature of those things. And so it was for the Vashti, 
his best and beloved, to never again be seen by the king, and to give her position and a crown and her crown to someone better than she. And so what do you think Mimikin meant by the phrase better than she? Someone who's Yeah, he wanted a toy yes. that would behave better, yes. right? And, and again, Mimikin probably also was trying to butter up a Hashverosh and was like, you think she's pretty? You just wait until we find you somebody even better. I mean, there was probably a level of that too. Um, Yeah, yeah, he took off the title. Exactly, yeah. And we have the grand words of verse 21, where it says, This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. That's right. It shows how I, it, I, just, I just love this book. Yeah, and this is one of those um, just so happens that can go on your list at the back, right? These ungodly drunk men made a recommendation that opened the door for the salvation of the Jewish people, right? great if somebody wants to look that up and also uh, Proverbs 21 1 the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it whenever he wishes yeah yeah Proverbs 21 one's a good one so we are going to look at Psalm 1 for a minute um, and I would encourage you, if you have your Bible or your smartphone, to turn there if you can. Psalm 1. It's six verses. Um, but we're going to sort of, I mean, the book of Esther, we're going to spend how many weeks? 18 weeks on 10 chapters. We've got to add some extra scripture here somewhere. So here's, here's one opportunity for that. Um, and I, I did give somebody Psalm 1, right? Okay. So what is the blessed man to avoid? The wicked, the sinners, and the mockers. And even, even more than that, it's the counsel of the wicked, 
standing in the way of sinners and sitting with the scoffers, right? We think about counsel being the advice. Standing in the way of sinners is standing by following their behavior. And then sitting in the seat means you're sitting, you're remaining, you're enjoying the company of scoffers and mockers. The, in other words, the righteous man does not make decisions on the basis of advice from bad people. He does not follow the pattern of behavior of bad people, and he does not surround him or herself with the people who mock God or others. Instead, what is it that the man of the blessed man does choose? Delighting in the law of the Lord. What's meant by delighting? To find joy. You long for it. You desire it above everything. You are drinking in every word. The psalmist here is saying that the word of God is never far from the thoughts of the man. Uh, Roger Ellsworth is a commentator, he says, he finds that the word of God has a joy for every sorrow and a truth for every situation. And then we see this tree, this tree pops up. What do you think the tree suggests? What about our bodies? When you think of a tree, what do you think of? Deeply rooted, You've got branches, fruit, shade, so there's refreshment, um, strength, beauty. And the same things can be said for one who delights in the Word of God. When we delight in the Word of God, we are like a tree because we have strength and stability. We bear fruit. We are deeply rooted. We have beauty. We have refreshment. And then it, then it talks about the unrighteous or the ungodly person. And so what is the chaff when it talks about that? It's, it's like the husks that go around the grain, right? We live um, out in the middle of farmland and so we're on this cul-de-sac and so there's houses immediately around us and then so this like small ring of houses and then there's farms like everywhere and so it's the season for harvesting corn it's also known as my terrible allergy season why we live surrounded by cornfields god only knows but um but we don't often see pieces of corn blowing down the street. But we see the husks everywhere. Even at our yard, 500, 750 feet away from the nearest farm, we get husks of the corn in our yard. That's the, that's the chaff. That represents those whose lives are not rooted in the word. They will have no part in eternity with God. And so I had us look at Psalm 1 when we're talking about the book of Esther. Which of these does Ahasuerus fall into? Yeah, he's, he's part of the ungodly. He's the, he's the husk, the, the chaff. 
He surrounded himself, his counselors were not good men. He surrounded himself with drunkenness. He is overcome with pride and materialism. And so what is the challenge for us from Psalm 1? We should be in the Word. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Word. We need to be with people of the Word. We need to be advised by people who are, who are in the Word. We need to be in a Bible-teaching, Word-centered church. This does not mean that we cannot have friends who are not Christians. You need non-Christians in your life. But if, if those are the people that are your closest confidants, those are the ones that you go to first when you are struggling with something, you need to think things through again. But we want to go, so we want to remember that as we go back to Esther. So Ahasuerus has banished Vashti from his presence. He has commanded wives to honor their husbands. And then he immediately searches for a new beloved, right? Let's, it does sound funny. <laughs> so let's read Esther 2, 1 through 4. And I know we're to the, almost to the eleven fifteen time. And if you need to leave, you are more than welcome to leave. I just knew there was no childcare, so that meant I could, um, I could take my time. <laughs> After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers of all the provinces, provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be clean instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So when does this passage occur? After he came back from being defeated at Greece. Well, it, tells, it just tells us for this, it just says after these things. So what are these, these, things. these things, right? And so that's where, that's where we have to sneak a peek ahead. Um, and so... Sandy, was it you we gave verse 16 to? Yes. So in and when Esther was taken to King Asherus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And so that's when we see Esther comes in before the king, the tenth month of the seventh year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. So the beginning, we were in the third year. She doesn't come before him until the seventh year. And she's been in a year of, treatment, of, of beauty treatments, right? We'll see all that coming up. And so some time has passed. If you go to your timeline, you would see that, that, that when Esther appears before the king would be the seventh year would be 479 BC. But if you remember from last week, King Ahasuerus, his invasion of Greece, where he tried to continue his father's invasion of Greece, 
He had an early victory and then his navy was decimated in Salamis and the Persians returned home in 480 BC. So in the meantime, after these things, these things we can, we, we can speculate was he went on to try to invade Greece and he failed miserably. And so now he is depressed. Uh, he he is, has suffered this devastating loss. He wants comfort from his beloved, but she is not there. And so he remembered Vashti. Right? That word remembered implies compassion to make memorial. He had an entire harem of women and concubines, but he missed his queen. And according to his decree, based on Mimukin and the other wise men's advice, he couldn't, he couldn't bring her back. He couldn't even see her. Uh, the, he, uh, and so who is it here that gives the advice to the king? Yeah, the young men, those would be his servants. Why is it important to mention that it was his servants, not his advisors, not his wise men, not the princes, the servants that are the ones that, that gave this advice? The only people that saw him depressed, because he would have been putting on a facade, the only people that saw him depressed would have likely been his servants. They would have seen the emotion of the king behind the scenes. They would have seen the pain of him missing his beloved. And so they propose that he seeks beautiful young virgins and appoints officers to gather them up and to give them makeup and to beauty treatments and for him to choose a new queen. So these women were uprooted from their communities. So it implied that they were, it was against their will. Um, though they would have been proud to have been chosen. So there was a level of that as well. Um, and then they would have been brought into his harem. If they weren't chosen to be queen, they were going to stay as a concubine. Um, it's kind of which a concubine is like the uh, socially acceptable mistress of the time. Um, she would hold a lesser social status to, to the first wife or to any of the wives. She purely existed for the man's pleasure. Um, she was basically the basically a wife without the security and privileges of marriage because she couldn't be involved with any other man um, and and it she was really there to be a status symbol for him and so if the king ignored any of these women they were destined to live in loneliness they couldn't marry again because once they had been with the king they were his so next time, we will be introduced to our, our title character. Finally, right, five weeks in, we're going to be introduced to Esther, who the, the book is named for. 
Um, and so as, as you think about Esther and Mordecai, when you read our next passage, verses 5 through 11, think about this situation with the king and what Esther will be entering into. And then we are done.